Welcome to La Ventanita, the Miami Herald Food Podcast. I'm Carlos Frias, the Miami Herald Food Editor, joined every week by my buddy over there, Amy Reyes. Hello, Carlos. How you doing? Good, good. I got that totally right this time. I'm excited. You know, today is a, is a weird day to be doing a podcast, and as we're still learning a little bit of the fallout from uh, Hurricane Ian, um, you know, we don't have hard numbers yet on how many people have been displa- uh, displaced or hurt or lost their lives. Um uh, so we're just going to keep that in mind, um, but still we're going to try to do a show, hopefully, and give some folks a respite from uh, all the flood videos. Take a like break. Fort- take a break yeah. from the um, the flood videos for a little bit, and we'll talk about we'll talk about food and we'll talk about stuff. Our our guest is super exciting today. I can't wait to talk to our, to the person that you cooked up for this oh, week. Look at you! Look at you! I'm, I'm very, very excited cagey. to meet You're her. So cagey. Uh, yeah. So listen, can we start with a shout out? Can we oh, you're going to give some shout outs? Yes, I'm going to give a shout out. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Sonia from Coral Gables. Oh, my God. We have uh, a fan. Who uh, who was uh, who I met while she was walking her lovely Australian shepherd the other day. And she uh, and I was walking my Ollie boy and they played together very nicely. And uh, she listens to the show, kind of watches it. And, oh, my uh, goodness. So I'm so, we I'm have so a happy fan. Random fans. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks for listening, Sonia. No, but but so my my walks today or my walk this morning with the Ollie boy was uh, was all about picking up all the loose avocados that ended up in the swale. Yes. Oh, I have to say that the one benefit of of having like 40 to 50 mile per hour winds in Miami was that the the, the avocados from the top of the tree are now falling down because. As I posted on my Instagram last week, you can see that I have to climb the actual tree to get to them now. It is a very dangerous operation. I was up there for literally like 45 minutes just with a little stick banging at these avocados. And I I got most of them. And as you know, because you have tasted my patio's avocados. Yes. My my avocados are fuego. They are are fantastic. They are a special kind of avocado that... I don't, I don't know anybody else in Miami who has these kind of avocados, but they they're are, stingy. They, they're stingy, though. They have a big seed and, and not like a ton of meat, but like just enough, like really. They're like single serving avocados, yeah, single like serving avocados. One person it. can eat from it like you can eat a whole avocado by yourself. You can share it like we, we smashed uh, from the couple you brought. We smashed one up and um, kind of used it for avocado toast and like two or three people ate from it. It was good. Yeah, no. I mean, you if you mash it, it's good. But if like if you just cut it up into slices and put some sauce Delicious. on it, like I have that for breakfast almost every morning at this point. I and almost saying, I'm not not at peak avocado yet, but I'm almost there. That avocado put your other one to shame so much that you felled it, right? We, we we chopped it down. I had another avocado tree that had the bell shaped ones and it was just given these trash avocados. And I was like, you know what? You are taking up soil that could be <laughs> nutrients that could be used by the real avocado tree over here. So you just got to go. So we, we chopped it down. We're like, why bye. can't you be more like your sister? <laughs> exactly. That's what I say bye. to my kids. Why can't you be more like your sister? That's exactly I, what I said to that and tree. Then I, and then I wait for that one to put me in a, in a home when I'm old. So That's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good. I, I'm glad to have some of those. And I brought it home a couple. So I'm going to see how... Uh, to see how the, my neighborhood's pilf, I'm pilfered sorry, avocados. But your neighborhood's taste. avocado trees can't mess with my tree. I don't know. One of them looks pretty good. I'm gonna, and one of them looks like like the one that you brought me. So I'm I'm very I'm very curious to see how it's gonna taste. All right. Well, I eagerly await your report. Yeah. Speaking of my report, I'm still waiting to hear back uh, from my the the uh, about my planchita. I'm st- it's still over at the Resto Mod shop. You know, getting uh, polished and plated. And you know what? That guy's an artist. I'm not <laughs> you cannot rush him. I, you, that man will not, I will not rush that man. I will not rush that man because I value what that 
planchita is going to turn into. So what's the status the of the planchita? He, he took it all I've, apart, washed la- it, cleaned it. Friday of last week, I heard that he had uh, he, he already had disassembled it, cleaned it, polished it, got it working, making sure it was working perfectly, which it was working already. And he put it all together, and then he was building some hardware for it. So, I've, yes, Bro. he's building like a brass handle, and that's Bro. like the next thing is the the, the fabrication is going to take a while. So I'm, I'm not going to push that, man. No, I think it'll be ready for like Thanksgiving. That's fine. Perfect mm-hmm. for the day after Thanksgiving to make some, uh, yeah, I'm some coming over for turkey, turkey sandwiches. Totally. Um, but in the meantime, I did get a little piece of bling for the bungee oh, that no. arrived in the mail. Did, yeah, oh, no. Look at that. Wow. I got a I got a, a little nameplate, a little badge made for it from a company that makes badges for cars. Uh it took like a month to arrive, but it's like this uh stainless steel plated in this sh- like shiny brassy gold. Uh and it's uh, it's about four inches long, so it's gonna be like perfect size for the planchita. My kids saw it and they're like, Dad, you are what so What are you going extra. through? <laughs> I know. <laughs> wait, wait. So where is La Planchita? Where is that little thing going to go? Where, where is I'm that put, part? So like right on the front, there's this plate where you have a knob that's been brass plated. Okay. So see where that orange part is? Yeah. That, yeah. Part, that part has been totally polished. So over where it says Electromaster there, that's where I'm going to put the, the Planchita. La Planchita. The, yes. So it's going to Dude, gonna, this gonna is pop, major. Man. This is so, you are so serious. I have I'm never se- seen anybody take their sandwiches more serious, seriously than you. Let me tell you, I would be dangerous with any kind of money because I would be resto modding all kinds of weird things. Uh, cars at the top of that list, but uh, but so I'm gonna go with like what keep I can, your yeah keep your hobby like micro like yes. <laughs> focus in on the sandwich. The that's sandwich such a good way to put press. it. Yeah, it's such a I'm keeping I'm, it's keeping my expenses lowish, you know. So, uh, but I'm very excited. I I, I talked to a, to this guy, you know, the uh, filmmaker Joe Cardona. Mm-hmm. He was uh he, he did a big a big thing on on Celia Cruz some years back. And I, he was interviewing me for something. And he's like, dude, there's a guy who listens to the podcast. He's like, he's a bro buddy of mine who like now wants to get a planchita and get it all resto modded. He's like a gadget guy. So you know what? If this turns out great, which I have a good feeling about it, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to go through all the steps. And then your I buddy, think Joe, that your, your buddy, we're, your we're, planchita we're, guy is probably going to get a lot of business based on your your custom plancha. I hope so. I mean, if it's something that he wants, I, I hope so, because, you know, so far, so good. Well, I think everybody everybody has a sandwich press in their house. It just depends on like what kind. Not I have. Like I just use a George Foreman. Not like mine. No, 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 no. no. I'm saying like everybody <laughs> has one, but nobody like if you want to upgrade, yeah, you want to get to Carlos. Nobody's level. as stupid as me. No, that's true. No, nobody's no nobody's as dedicated to the Church of Sandwichology as Listen, Carlos Frias. This is my altar. This, <laughs> this is your altar. the planchita will be my altar. So it's a perfect fit. Oye, me, um, uh, is it is it time? Should we yeah, bring her on? Dale. Yeah. Okay. So our guest this week is Vanessa Garcia. So Vanessa wrote the story of rum. Uh, her play, The Amparo Experience, told the true tale of the Cuban family behind the real Havana Club rum. Uh, and it became the hottest theater ticket in Miami, uh, selling out show after show for six months. Uh, it's hard to overstate what a hit it became. I mean, even among usual non-theater crowd, uh, it rode this sort of wavelength running through Miami's immigrant story. I think that's really why it it really took off. Um, um, and, and, you know, Vanessa manages to grab people's attention with her variety of works, plays, journalism, fiction, nonfiction, and a podcast that she hosts uh, with her mom and her sister. 
Um, even the pandemic couldn't stop her. She wrote a radio play uh, and another performed virtually called Jenna and the Whale, which she co-wrote with my buddy Jake Klein. Shout out, Jake. Uh, and she's a voice for Cuban artists on the island that the government tries to silence. Uh, her writing career continues to touch on food um, and the restless story of Cuba. Uh, her newest work is What the Bread Says. It's a children's book about how an entire country's story can be told through its bread, from revolution, revolutionary French baguette uh, to the Cuban bread of exile. Uh, and she has a new play debuting at the Arts Center called Hashtag Graced about the evolution of the American dream. So uh, let's talk to Vanessa about all the things. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi, I'm super happy to be here and also cracking up behind backstage at at the press and that, oh my God, that climbing is spectacular. I yeah, was like, was, oh my God, Amy, my dismount there. The landing. What you don't know is Jamie, uh, Amy was a gymnast. Oh, yes, yes. This she makes was, all the sense. It yeah. Does. So I, I still can climb and I can still like do cartwheels and stuff, but I, I'm at the age now where the inner ear thing makes it so that your body doesn't want to do that anymore. Uh-huh. So like I can't ride roller coasters. Oh my god! Oh yeah, she went from a from a protege gymnast to a. Oh man, I used to be. My parents used to be so afraid to take me to parks because I would just be like flipping on the on the <laughs> that like old nineteen eighties equipment, and so they were just like, "Yeah, we're gonna take her home." It's like Amy, this this floor oh. does not bounce back. No, <laughs> I feel like that's gonna be my daughter. <laughs> I see the future. Yep, probably. Vanessa, I always see you. Um, uh, like when you post stuff on Instagram, like you're you're so often cooking, you're always doing stuff with your kids. And I'm always like I'm always interested in how you find time to do all these varied um, performance activities, things that are very art art related, but also like life related. And yeah, and she's domestic, too, because I, I remember watching <laughs> you did this whole story about cooking for your your young son and you yeah. were making this very elaborate meal. And I was just like. Oh my God, I would do something like that for my children when they were little and they would literally eat zero parts of it. And then yeah. you like showed him actually eating. And I was like, oh, why? Why can't my kids be like that? They don't love me. Thankfully, they both love food. I'm super grateful because my sister's kids are the kind of kids that won't eat anything. And I'm like, oh my God, that would be a nightmare. So my kids will try everything and my daughter more than anything. Like she, she, she oh she goes to the fridge every three seconds. She tries to open the fridge every three seconds. I have to stop her. <laughs> like no, take um, it down a notch. Yeah, just please, fed you, please. <laughs> how did trying you, How did you do that? Like, what was the like? My kids, I think we just exposed them to a lot of food, so they yeah. they're generally like two out of three are are very curious. One of them is a little bit finicky, but still, like, what did you try to do to get them open to trying new stuff? You know. It's funny because I call them crocketarians because I'm a vegetarian and mostly we cook veggie. You know, I like do everything veggie and they're mostly vegetarians, but my grandmother gives them croquetas. So <laughs> <laughs> they're crocketarians because I can, I can get down with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you had to pick one meat. Well, they they have chosen croquetas. They don't really it's do like the people who it's like people who are vegetarian until they see bacon. Yes. You know, some people, <laughs> some people, because like bacon is like the ultimate food. It's like one of those foods that's so important that they define religions yeah. on whether or not you can eat it, you yeah. know? So like, I, I understand the croqueta dilemma. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I, I, I let them try everything. And then recently my son, I just found out likes sashimi. So I'm like, wow, Perfect. if you like that, then we're going to do this because, mm -hmm. you know, kids don't usually do that. So today 
um, to his aunt. I brought home some sashimi. And she's like, this, I was like, this is what they're going to have for lunch. She was like, yeah, right. Like, I swear to God, watch. watch <laughs> so my, gonna do it. <laughs> my little one is like that. She she doesn't like the nori. She doesn't like the, the strong seaweed right. flavor of the nori. But she loves the nigiri, you know, the, the fresh yep. fish over the ball of rice. And yeah. and like that's we finally figured out. We figured out the thing at the at the sushi restaurant that she loves. And it's it's just weird to see. Yeah. The things that they don't like and the things that they will go for. So, yeah, it's a texture thing. Well, it's what like happens that. when you take them yeah. to Abuela? Did your parents, um, do your parents cook like pretty typical Cuban meals or like, are they mm. more, are they more like you? Like they, they do vegetarian stuff. My mom at some point in her, in her life decided that she was going to try vegetarianism and did it for like five years. And my sister also tried it and then they just dropped it. Both of them. My sister called me one day and she was like, Hey, um, I don't know what to do because all I want right now is a really bloody steak. I was like, well, I think you should go back to not being a vegetarian. Um, so they both have stopped. And when they go over there, my grandmother still doesn't quite understand that I'm a vegetarian, even though I've been one since I was 12. Um, so it's sort of like, uh, oh, they don't, they don't eat that, but you can try. And, you know, I just let them you do You don't whatever. eat meat? I make you lamb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> you want chicken? I give you chicken instead. <laughs> That's oye, exactly. Oh yeah, let's talk a little bit about about um, just giving folks a little bit of about background of of your work and such. Like you've been writing for so long, um, you know, in in all different fields. But it was something about the Amparo experience a couple mm. of years ago in 2019 that seemed to like capture Miami's interest, which is a hard thing to do for yeah. Miami. Uh, yeah. And we're like non-theater people. It was like the thing to go to. It was the place, it was. It became that place to be seen, that thing to do, that thing you didn't want to miss while it was running. Can you think yeah. about, talk a, a little bit about what you think it was that, that, that struck people about that play? I think that since the beginning, it was telling the story of Miami in so many ways. It told so many people's stories. Um, from the moment we started rehearsing with the actors, the actors themselves were telling their stories in the rehearsal process. It was like, it was an experiment in what acting is because they were getting so connected with the story that it was their story, even though it was the Arechavala story and the story of rum, that I ended up putting pieces of their lives and their families inside the story. So I feel like when people went, that same thing happened to them. They were like, I am seeing my story. I am seeing this happening. And it happened to an extent that was um, both fascinating to watch, moving, and sometimes heartbreaking because there were moments. I mean, we called it the fainting show because we had at least one fainter every weekend. Oh, wow. We learned that in the pilot. The I laugh about this now, but it was not funny at first because... Um, the the guards got really used to catching people. They were like, we know where this is going to happen. And they would swoop in and catch them. And what the was people... the profile of a fainter generally? Well, one once this sounds like a joke, but one time it was an entire family. It was oh the God. mom, the daughter and the grandmother. They went, buck, buck, buck. they like plop, 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 down, down. Yeah, wow. like that. Yeah, it was a lot. But in which moment of the play was it that they would that they it would, would always happen? Because you went in and it was like, oh, I thought I was going into the revolution, but actually it's 1957. And then of course people would think that you you got it wrong, and they were like, eso no pasó en el 57. And we're like, yeah, because we're in 57 now. <laughs> like get it, you know? And, and 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 people should understand that the play, who haven't seen it or heard of it, is the play was an interactive play. You moved yes. through a space, through a house. It wasn't you weren't you weren't watching it on on a, you know on a stage you were moving yes. like it was space. happening all around you 
Correct. So it's, it was, so it's fifty-seven, and and what? And tell us about getting to that point where so you, you know, like up. the revolution hits. It's a, it's about to be you know New Year fifty-nine, end of fifty-eight, and things start to shift, and um, the the you know they they start to feel it, and it starts to happen, and the guards start showing up, and the militia starts showing up, and people that had been dressed up differently you know, as uh, just regular people at the party are now militia and they start to feel, I feel like some of them were like, I, I feel betrayed. Um, and so they started to relive certain things and, and people would faint. And um, the, there was one, one specific, they would always ask to come back in, which was always fascinating to me. Like they, they would be taken outside and they were like, please take me back. I want to go back in. I want to go back in. Um, because like you said, you, you would walk through, you would experience the play and there were 23 different ways of seeing the play five entry points, but you could go 23 times and it would be different. And, um, and one time, uh, there were these two sisters, uh, the Betancourt sisters that were there and they, they left and they waited for me in the, in the rum garden and they waited for me and this happened over and over again, but they waited for me to tell me we had to leave because they left right near the end, right at the, there was a, the firing squad el, um, at the very, very end and um, El Paredon. And they were like, that happened exactly like that to our, to our family. So it really felt like exactly that story. We couldn't watch it again. You know, our brother, our family, everybody. And so they were talking about things that had happened to them personally that everybody else was watching and then, you know, children and, and, and the grandkids of people were sort of talking about, and this is all what happened after in the rum garden would say, you know, like I always heard my family story, but I, it kind of clicked right now, you know, like I just felt it for the first time because you hear things. And that was our intention. That was, you can say thing a million, a million times, but it's different to actually live it. And we're never, thank God, going to, live that specific experience uh, but knock on wood we, yeah right yeah. yeah um but to go through it is a different thing and the closest thing we could get to showing people what it was was what we did with amparo can you how did you, know, you guys I, I feel how did like, you guys I, well, oh i'm sorry go ahead carlos i was gonna say i feel like this story in miami when we hear it um we understand like in Miami still, we, we still, we, we feel it in our bones. We understand mm -hmm. that story. And I think it resonates so strongly. Doesn't it? Don't you wish that you could put on the Amparo like on Broadway or yeah. on, in a, in a, in a venue where you can get those people that travel that are outside of Miami that grew up mm -hmm. or, or, or have learned the lesson of Cuba as a revolutionary story, as a, yeah. as a Chan Castro story. Um, don't you wish that you could see that these folks are the ones that need to hear that story, you know? Yeah. So two things for that. One, we tried, we had two pilots before we went into the production that everybody saw, um, that were very limited audiences. One did happen in New York for specifically that reason to test what would happen in a New York audience. Um, it was phenomenal. People were lining up outside. So, um, the, And it was interesting because there's a moment in the play where you have the audience chooses whether they go to the revolution or not. And in Miami, it's like we always say the floor would slant because no one would would go with the revolution. Um, but in New York, definitely there was a, there was a guy who was like, Viva la Revolución. And he went with the revolution. And that actually helped us to craft it even better. You know, interesting. Um, so. 
I it was, it was part of the development process yes. of the play. Yeah. Wow. And because we wanted to eventually end up there. So right after we closed Amparo in November, at the end of November of 2019, which thank God, because we would have been the biggest spreader of COVID. Um, <laughs> For like sure. Everyone was on top of each other in that play. <laughs> um, we, the, right away, we were already um, looking and scouting locations in other cities because the whole idea was to go outside of Miami. Um, and then the pandemic hits and then things change and we put Amparo, we did an online version on Instagram, which is a totally different thing, but it was sort of to like have the story recorded. Um, and it's like, I always see it's like an Instagram film sort of. Um, and that's at the Amparo experience on Instagram. That's the only place you could see it. But, uh, Victoria, who was the director, Victoria Coyala and I, um, I want to do exactly what you're saying. Carlos, which is essentially tell this story, but get it outside of Miami in the sense of it's born here and it's important that we see it. But to a certain degree, it's preaching to the choir, right? So how do you get it out and into the world? So we created our company, Abre Camino Collective, for that purpose. And so the things that we do are with that intention to move it out. Um, so I don't know if that will be with the Amparo experience, but it'll definitely be with things that we do. How did you guys decide to use th that particular um, family <clears throat> and their business as the framing device for this? Because you could have like everyone kind of has a relatable story that like a lot of Cuban-Americans have family that has a relatable story. But why why them specifically? This was the perfect. It was like a stars aligning destiny. I don't know what you want to call this, but this is what happened because I got a phone call one day from uh, Paul Ramirez, who was the person who was um, on the marketing company for Havana Club Rum. And he had heard of me as someone who wrote about Cuba and also wrote plays. And they wanted to do a 20 minute, uh, sort of a 20 minute immersive thing at a bar. This is how this started. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, okay, let me finish this project I'm working on and we'll talk again, you know, I don't know, in a couple of weeks. Great. So we got on the, he told me, by the way, this is the story. It's the Arechavala family. In the meantime, I looked it up and I was like, oh my God, this is an this incredible is story. story. Right? Right. It's all of our story. And why isn't the story out there? Also, it's like, it's drama and it's, it's like legal drama meets family drama meets a love story. It's just, it's all of, it's everything. So I was very excited and I was like, Paul, yes. And then we went to have a beer and I was like, we should get uh, Victoria on because she was directing, um, assistant directing John Leguizamo on Broadway at the time. And I was like, let's bring her and let's do this. Once she got on and we were talking and everything sort of started to gel, that never became a 20 minute experience because then someone else came in, which was named Michael Sheehan, who was sort of like bridging between the marketing company and Bacardi and the whole team aligned in such a way that it was like, go, go for it, guys, do it. And they gave us all the freedom. You got to so, say that was, that was the best spent marketing, best spent marketing dollars that was, in the history that was of forever. Genius. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah genius collaboration. It totally transcended the original idea uh, into, into something yeah. For them, super risky in the sense of like they didn't, they're not, like they said it all the time, Bacardi was like, we're not theater people. We know nothing about theater. So they kind of just trusted us to do That's this, awesome. which was spectacular. <laughs> yeah. I, talk to me a little bit about, you know, it's it, it's always these things that surprise me. You know, it's certain things that, that put people, quote unquote, on the map. But it's like, it's a lifetime of work to have that overnight success, right? Yeah. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about um, your, your writing life. Like how did that become... 
uh, and, and because it's so varied, because you write mm -hmm. in so many mediums and different formats, um, talk to yep. me a little about getting to that to this point. Oh my god, uh, <laughs> my brain just went into like. Brrr. Did you grow uh, up down here? What, what's your What are your Miami credentials? Let's start with so, that. Okay, so I, I was born here. I was born here, and um, I lived seven year, years in New York and five years in LA, and then came back here. Um, but I was, you know, I I decided after um, I always wrote. Um, I even took a semester off uh, between college, between high school and college, and wrote my first novel, which was terrible, of course. But I wrote it while working at Books and Books, who gave me my first, you know, like grown-up nice. job when oh, it was in the corner. Nice. What was the name of that novel? Adam and Eve Revisited. Please, oh. dear God. Don't find it. <laughs> I now mean, we have to read it. I mean, I, I, it's never, it's not out. Thank God. It's like in some drawer somewhere. Who knows? Who knows? It's probably like on a, on a floppy disk. On a floppy disk, yes. Yeah. Three and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Mitchell Kaplan gave me a job and uh, cool. I worked there for, for a, a semester and then went to, to school in New York. Um, Let's just give at, some love to Mitchell Kaplan. Yeah, like, we, we love like, Mitchell. Like He's such a constant support. I mean, even, even yeah. at its base, just yeah. being a place where a writer can go yep. and spend all day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, as it happened to me, I used to write there a lot before I, I yeah. lived here in Miami, before I moved into a house in Miami. Um, and I'm still like like 10 blocks from Books and Books. But I would go there so often that like I once left without paying, like after eating. And then I came back like two days later and it was like, hey, uh, that last time you were here, you didn't, you know, you didn't pay your bill and I paid and everything was fine. And we just, yeah. it was like, that's like the, the kind old of place corner shop. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. about to say, it's like you have an account there, like old timey yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. Put it on my yeah. tab. It's just amazing. It was, I don't know if you guys remember it, but it was the little corner one. The one that was on the corner. Oh, you, that were, it was, you were at the original one. That's now like some weird barbershop or something. It's the right? barbershop where I actually cut my hair. Oh, is that <laughs> right? <laughs> I yeah. think Jake cuts his hair there too. No way. That's I think so. so. Funny. I oh my think God. So. That is so funny. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, I mean, speaking of like Miami credentials, there's so many things. Like after I, I left New York, cause I was there for seven years and I worked for, I'll go through that part quickly, but I worked for a British writer for a long time. I was his uh, personal assistant, but that meant like also doing a lot of research and going to, to Ghana with a group of students and going to Bellagio for a conference. And so it was like very, very active. This is how you live wow. as a writer. And cool. then I came back to Miami and was like, I was only going to take a six month break to Miami. So I packed my stuff and I was like, I'm going to get out of debt and I'm going <laughs> to go back to New York. But Miami like Miami does, surprised me. And I was like, wow, what's happening here? This is so cool. What's going on? There's so much exciting stuff. And so I was like, I'm, I stayed. I got my stuff out of storage and I stayed in Miami. And at that point in my life, I was painting and writing. But painting has a big overhead and writing actually pays you <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so I was writing stories for $50, I remember. Like oh, a lot of them. Yep. A yep. lot. Like a lot. Yeah. I would be writing one and already like the next one would be, it was already starting. It was like a machine. Right. You, they um, just, you just fed a new, fed it was a new page like, in, and then that I'd kind be of thing. pitching and pitching while I was finishing the other one. And it was this whole thing. But I did, I, cause I, I, I wrote to, I actually wrote to Alberto Ibarguen and I was like, Hey, this is who I am. This is why you should know. And I'm going to write for you and I want to write. And he was like, you know what? Let me send you over to the managing editor at the Herald. Sends me to the managing editor and the managing editor is like, 
so because I, I said I wanted to call him. I was like 20 something. And um, they were like, yeah, maybe you have to live a little bit more to have a call. <laughs> Um, which I still want, mind you, but at the time I was like, yeah, that was probably not, but I had given them this whole pitch and this proposal and it was like a port, like a, a whole thing, whole idea. It was called the return of the native. I remember. And then they, they placed me with, uh, they were like, Hey, go talk to Jim Murphy. And Jim sat me down and he was like, let me show you how I'm going to edit this. And I stood right behind him. And on the computer, he just like slashed everything, and, like did all this <laughs> you, stuff right for me, like the green. Everything screen. was a slash across like, your across your heart. <laughs> uh, but he was like, "Do you want a small column on food?" Oh, um, interesting. Yep. So so then I did that for a long time. I did um, like casual eats, and then I did up and comers, and then I did uh, eventually features, and then you know. I started to, you know, write for other people and sure. I wrote a book and, you know, it moves like that, you know, so right, it went right. from... Everything builds on, on everything else. What, yeah. what were some of those places like when you were writing about places that you still like to eat, places that... You know what I was remembering the other day and now, like, there were, back then, I mean, it was people who were like just starting um, on Top Chef, what's this, in, like Bulldog or something, I don't care yes. yeah, Do yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking I, about? Howie Kleinberg is a matter yes. of fact. Yeah, he just he just passed away. I know. That's why that's why I was like, oh, my God. And I started to look back at some of those things. And um, but there were a lot of chefs that were starting that were sort of starting out that I'm like, wow, this is so very, this is very like cool. early, like mid 2000s, right? Exactly. Mid-2000s. OK, exactly. Mid 2000s. What, what what is it about food? Do you think that has drawn you like there's always been some some food yeah. or drink think that that you've written yep. about that that you have so much heart in? I know it's. You know, I would say, I really think it's my grandfather. Um, my my grandfather taught me how to how to bake, and we told a lot of stories in the kitchen while we did that, and it's what brought everybody together. My grandfather's story is incredible. He essentially was um, 13 years old when he escaped Franco's uh, Spain, crossing the Pyrenees Mountains on foot wow. into France with his brother, who was only 15. So he's 13, his brother's 15. They cross the Pyrenees Mountains, they get to France, they put them in foster care. And of course, very shortly thereafter, Hitler is striking all over Europe. And they tell them, you better get out of here. So they get on a ship with a a bunch of Jewish kids who are running for their lives to Ellis Island. When they get to Ellis Island, and this was a ship that Nabokov had gotten on the month after my grandfather. So oh my by a God. month, they oh, was, wow. yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of research on this, but, um, incredible. Yeah. It's very uh, an intense, insane story. So they go to Ellis Island, he and his brother, Pedro, and they know that if they tell them they're Spanish, they'll send them back to Spain and they don't want to go back because <laughs> of the war. So they say we're Cuban. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And they put on the accent and the whole thing and they go, they, they get on a boat <laughs> to Cuba. And at this point, you know, they're young and they start their life there. They, my grandfather meets my grandmother. Um, Pedro meets his wife. My mom is born. My aunt is born. And they start, my grandfather worked for the, the hospitality union, uh, the baker's union. And um, he, they were, they helped build the Havana Hilton with the pensions of the, of the, of the hospitality workers, all of this. But while they're working, they're seeing that something's coming and they can sort of sniff out that this is not going to be good. 
and but they want to fight against it and so they immediately start fighting against uh uh castro and the men in the mountains and the whole thing they're 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 against and um everybody's sort of like eh, it's fine you know you're but again they've escaped two they've tyrannies before yeah, right they, they had seen this before yeah <laughs> yeah so then exactly yeah, so your grandfather so he was un panadero in cuba so he was essentially he worked with the union. He was studying architecture, oh, but oh, he was uh, like he he and his brother were sort of like high up in the union of hospitality, which he would always called call el sindicato de los panaderos. But I later find out that it was actually the bigger hospitality union. Oh, um, so I'm doing more research on that right now because that's a whole very interesting part of it. But my grandfather escaped essentially with like this much a hair's breadth of his life. And my uncle was in prison for nine years and oh, tortured. Yes. And when oh, he wow. got out, no. What year did he? What year did your dad, uh, your grandfather, leave? Sixty-one. Yeah, so very my, close. Yeah. yeah, my dad was uh, imprisoned. I think in 61, 61 yeah. or sixty-two, wow. and then and then he was there. He was in for four years. Yeah. Um, wow. And and so how was your so your grandfather has this has this it was so baking for him was more of a hobby then that he that he carried with him. I think it was inside of him, his family, he has six sisters, six Spanish sisters. And, you know, when I went to Spain, I was like, oh, yes, I see where everything comes from, you know. So did all of his sisters stay in Spain? They Well, one of them went to France and Mm. married a French guy. And I so I have a French side of the family and like cousins are twins named uh, Celine and Virginie. So like Mm -hmm. there's a French side, but then the rest of them stayed in Spain. And my my grand uncle, his brother went back to Spain and when he got out of prison, he didn't speak to anyone for a year. Like he just couldn't speak. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then That's he had a stunning. normal life, but uh, for one year, it was just no, nothing, speechless. <laughs> Reac- yeah, reacclimating wow. to, to a world outside of uh, being yeah. tortured in a human prison. Good Lord. Yeah. But, but anyway, all this stuff made its way into the kitchen that I grew up in, which was in my grandmother's house. And so we would bake bread. And I remember the first time he, he said, okay, we're going to make a baguette. And bread just is a ton of waiting. It's like chemistry and waiting and waiting. Oh my God. Carlos was baking bread a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, it's basically like having a baby. You have to, you have to like get on its schedule. And I was like, why are you doing that? You better start at the right time. Otherwise that baby's going to like, you got to come get it. Yep. Correct, and it, it's breathing literally. Like you yeah. watch mm-hmm. it rise, and you have to. And if you it. wait too, yeah. if you wait too long, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's gonna fall flat and get all oozy like a baby's diaper. So exactly, and it's and, so- and especially with sourdoughs, which is like Cuban bread is a sourdough. Yeah. yeah, you know where it's just like you have to, you have to wait for it. There's yeah. no instant yeast. I mean, I guess you can use the instant, but for the most part. You yep. just have to let it do its thing and not mess Correct. with it. Well, one much. time I waited too long and my my bread tasted like beer, so I don't. <laughs> yes, I don't even <laughs> try. Like I was like, why does it taste? What does this taste like? And then my husband was like, Pure it tastes yeast. like beer. You yeah. say that like it's a bad thing, though. No, it was not good bread. No, it wasn't good bread. It was bad. Ultra sour. <laughs> it was sour. not good bread. <laughs> so you grew up in that kitchen, like learning yeah. to learning to cook like that. And then he would tell me the story. So this story that I know that I just told you, he would tell me little by little while we were cooking and waiting and baking. And, and that was always, and then if, you know, the leftover bread from the next day was croutons, you know, so we would cut it up and fry it in the pan. And, um, he would, you know, he was, he always said, all you need uh, is, is un, un pedazo de pan bajo el brazo y vino, pan y vino. 
That's all you really oh, need. Man. We cooked and yeah, ate a lot the of other things. That's the Holy Communion diet. I, yep. I agree. <laughs> yeah. But you, um, you've always taken, uh, it seems from your work that you, I mean, and certainly as a writer, you're, you feast on that information. Like you're yeah. able to take it and, and use it and, and use it as fuel for things that you write. And the, 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 the kids book that you wrote, that's a new thing for you, right? Like that's a new, a new vehicle yeah. to tell it, to tell a story and to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Which is like this one right here, which I'm sure. Pierre yes. Has a, he's gonna, <laughs> there he's it is. Show what the bread says. It's Did you make it for your says. children? Is that you know, is that kind of the idea? I wrote it before they were born. Oh, oh I, wow. I wrote it in 2016. Things take forever. Yeah. yeah. Things take forever. Like <laughs> is it because, uh, is it something that you wanted to get down as a little, it was like a small story that you wanted to preserve type of thing? I really wanted to tell the story of the story of my grandfather. And this is the beginning of that. And because I was a kid, when that memory starts, I feel like I wanted to make it this the vehicle for it, because I want this for my children. Also, you know, I want them to know their story. And so I wanted it to start this way. Um, But but yeah, I feel like it's the the beginning of something. And I'm I'm really kind of um, sort of incredibly proud that his pictures on the flap on the front flap and and you know his story is is beginning to get out into the world and I know it's a lot of people's story I know even the fact that that there's this moment of of him talking about having to leave Cuba in the center of this book is important for people because that's not in a lot of kids books um Mm -hmm. for a long time publishers were afraid of that they were like they won't touch Cuba in in certain ways because they're like well too many questions to explain yeah yeah. So, um, but I, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely happy that it's out and it's always something I wanted to do. And I've written for kids TV. So I had the kind of voice inside, you know, to, to be able to, to craft it. But I wrote this even before the kids TV stuff happened. Oh, that's super cute. <laughs> yeah. It's very cute. It's very cute. And you know, you brought up an interesting point, which is that publishers are not are, are not as afraid as they were even 10 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I think my book came out just uh, over 10 years ago, but it was like, there was starting to be that, that old narrative, that narrative that, that, yeah. I mean, that successfully won over the American public, you know, mm-hmm. um, after the revolution in Cuba, that, uh, you know, that, the, that the story was, you know, this happy revolution, this right. little banana Republic, happy revolution. And the real story started to come out. Um, I know that you were really, active um during july of last year mm-hmm. when there were you know the protests in cuba um yep. you you really expanded the voice talk, talk to me a little bit about you you've worked with artists and dissidents mm-hmm. in cuba to get their voices out to, yeah. just tell me a little bit about where about that so i mean i feel like um it's one of those things that you're you're sort of inside of what's happening in cuba and trying to tell people what's happening in cuba um, and everybody, the response from a lot of people was, you know, if it's so bad, why aren't they protesting? Um, if it's so bad, why aren't they rising up? Right. And so then it was the, the, the battle of describing what it might be like to do that in a dictatorship, what it might be like to do that under a complete, um, tyranny, you know, where you actually don't have that right. Um, so that was always this, this battle. Um, and I had all this in my, my PhD had, had focused on Cuba. Your book was on my list. Oh, <laughs> of, right of my, on. Yeah. Um, and, and the, so I had all this information of family and, and research and stories that I had collected. And then July 11 hits and the people are on the street and all of the people that I had been sort of like, 
reading and researching and speaking to were now out there doing this in front of the entire world. And it seemed like the only possible thing that you could do um, was at least shine a light over there, you know, and say, okay, this is what's happening. And sometimes what happens with Cuba is that because we know so much of the story, we start like at J and people are like, what are you talking about? You need to go back to A. Yeah. Hang on. Exactly. So it was this whole, it was just like this thing that happened of this drive of being like, tell the story from A, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So it's like A, B, C, and then bringing in these stories of people that were doing this now and then C, D, and here's this thing that's happening right Yeah, It was just like, that was the drive, you know? And um, it hasn't, it's, it's sad. A lot of times people are like, oh, it's sad that everything has, has faded. I'm pretty sure that they are, I'm, they're about to rise up again because they're in some serious dire straits right now, not only with the hurricane that just hit them and the fact that they've been in the dark, but prior to that, so much has been happening, you know, and they have been trying and um, it just hasn't shown itself in such a, um, you know, a, sort of like hasn't caught fire the way that, that it did after July 11th. Um, I feel like that was... Um that was the first crack. Like, yeah, exactly. I think, I think for the first time, America looked at that. Mm-hmm. A general, a general audience that didn't have a background in Cuba looked at that yep. and formed a new opinion or formed yep. a first opinion mm-hmm. for really for a whole other generation about what that government and what it really means to live in really one of the the handful of totalitarian governments yep. still left in the world. Um, yep. And I and I I'm with you. I think that I think that that was really only the first wave. I don't think that people have forgotten or that 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 it's over. I think that like that was the first wave, probably. I think so too. And I think I think everything is connected. And I think that every action matters. Um, you know, speaking of 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 just this book, there was a moment where the publisher. Um, this is an amazing publishing uh, company, Cardinal World Plus. I love them. But I say this also because I was able to have a very true conversation with them. They had been printing um, their books in China. And I was like, I don't think that. <laughs> and it was hard because this book has been written since 2016. But in my mind, I was like, if this happens, I, you can't, I'm not going to be able to do this because you can't say I'm escaping three tyrannies and dictatorships and places in which censorship is alive and kicking and then and then have it printed there Mm -hmm. exactly so um you know it was a conversation and she said okay that the 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 financial setback for them was you know fairly big and they said okay and now they print in in the u.s oh that's amazing so you i mean talk about really putting your money where your mouth is like really saying i am willing to just eat it on this book on if and until if yeah. and when uh, you can print it somewhere that is that is not China, that is not that kind but of... But they were amazing. And that's something that I think might not have happened, you know, for example, if July 11th hadn't happened. If, you know, if, if, if that narrative, you know, on the larger scale and where everything interconnects wasn't out there in the way that it is getting out there, I think that um, this publisher was so gracious and open and really having a real conversation with me. And at the end, she was like, you know what? Thank you, because I had not filtered this this way. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you <laughs> for publishing my book and how I wanted it done. Yeah. That, yeah. that feels like a like an everyone wins kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. 
So things have been so different, like uh, since um, Barack Obama and then Trump and now Biden, like the the relationship we've had with Cuba has been like Mm -hmm. so much push and pull. Like we're trying to open up and then we're then we're like, no, 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 we're going to close back up. Like how my experience with a lot of Cuban Americans and, and Cubans who were born in Cuba, but then came here has been a lot of them were the like, I'm never going back until until Castro is gone, until his people are gone, until it's not communist. But then I feel like, you know, the next generation and subsequent generations have been able to kind of convince their families that this Mm -hmm. is having a relationship with the island and whatever under whatever circumstances might be of, you know, still of importance. How have you dealt with that kind of uh, like push and pull between the the relationship that the United States has with Cuba and Mm -hmm. still wanting to like, you know, wanting to to have a relationship with people in Cuba and know what they're doing and, and, you know, feel the the pull of your own country. But like, yeah. like, how do you manage that? Well, I always say it took me 15 years to convince my mom one to let me go. I know that sounds crazy because I was already an adult, but she's Cuban, Cuban mother. Yeah. Um, so it, but it took me 15 years to convince her to let me go. And she came with me on that trip on that first one. So that wow. first one was an incredible experience. Um, do, you, do you remember anything through all the crying? Yeah. I mean, the first thing was crying, right? Yeah. Like, and the woman behind me, I'll never forget. She said, eh, tan corto viaje y todos los años que tomo llegar. And I was like, that's exactly what's happened. And that was the first, like, mm-hmm. you know, joke. What shorter, what shorter trip, but, what all shorter the years, trip. but all the years that it took to get here. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I remember was, my yeah. husband went on that, the, the first cruise ship that went to Cuba. Yeah. And he, like, I remember him, him telling me that, like, when he would get to, the, when they would get to the, the port cities and stuff, mm-hmm. it was just, he felt very sad. Like, you know, like it, it was a very like arriving at a place that's not prepared to really receive you. And also just seeing that, like the people that were there were kind of c- confused about who, who who these people on this boat were. And then the people that were on the boat were kind of like apprehensive about what they were going to experience when they got there. It was bizarre. I was on that. I was on that ship because um, I was writing. I didn't tell them that I was doing this because I didn't want to be in the press where they sent them to the theater and then go back to Miami. They essentially were like, here you go. And then bye. Um, so I wanted to stay on the ship the whole time. And I was just completely watching, observing. And then I ended up writing something for narratively, which lets you do long form. And, um, that's exactly how it was. There was this woman I remember in, in one of the last ports and she, she was a viejita. She was an old lady and she comes out and she says, she was, she was already crying when she was starting to speak. I don't care. I don't care what they say to me. I'm going to talk to you. I don't care. I don't care. And, just, and and the people, the like all the people from the Midwest on the boat were like, what is happening? And then I stood there and translated what she was saying to them. And it felt like this incredible moment of this woman who could finally say all these things and translating that and then giving them context was like, poof. Wow. That's a, that's what a, real, cultural, a real cultural exchange. There. What did yes. she tell them, Vanessa? Mm-hmm. She said, they don't want me to be here. This is like now at the it was I remember that I wrote it at the end of, of the article because it was the last port. Um, but she essentially was like, they they have been keeping us quiet and I'm not supposed to be out here, but I don't care if they send me to jail. This is not essentially this is not free. I don't, I'm not living free. My family is all out of here. I need to leave. I'm not leaving, but everybody's gone and everything that we know. She's like mm-hmm. word vomited wow. to these people. And what did those Midwesterners say? 
they were they were just like leading in and listening to her like what is happening but they were essentially listening to my translation because they don't understand what she's saying um so i translated everything and you know any questions that they had later i answered them and then mm-hmm. people would ask me on the boat <laughs> it's amazing yeah. that, you, that you're able to kind of to bridge those things to, to and crazy. i think that you're you're really one of the you know one of the main writers that we have right now that's that's actively translating that history into into written work um uh, among all the other work that you're doing which i think is so important um uh, during the pandemic it must have been hard like you said it 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 kind of put this put a stop to what the amparo experience could have then evolved into and, and i hope that we'll see some some version of it but you never stopped writing like there were two works that i was just that I was very aware uh, that mm-hmm. you did one. One was the one on the radio, yeah. um, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, but I'm going to let you pronounce. Ich bin ein Berliner. Yes, which means roughly translated. I am a Berliner. All right, that's what Google Translate told me. So that <laughs> it's what it's what Kennedy said oh, in in yeah in his big speech um, in the middle of of uh, Berlin. Essentially, you know, we are all Berliners. Right. And, yeah. and then you did a, uh, a video one, um, mm-hmm. which is basically you, you wrote this play that was then acted uh, by actors, you know, and basically like uh, almost like a like almost like a table read um, for uh, Jenna and the Whale, which yes. um, you worked which on is my with buddy Jake. Jake. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we like we've been trying to get to lunch forever. It's I funny know. That this, is, this is the first time we're meeting is on this call. <laughs> yeah, that's so crazy. Well, that's because you have to leave the house. Uh, <laughs> is, is that one of those things where like. You had all this creative work in you, and you're like, I can't just like not do this anymore. Like, yeah, I, you know, this is still part of what I what I am. It was essentially a massive um, development phase. Meaning, um, with my company, I we developed a bunch of work mm-hmm. that we now have, and now are you know in that that selling mode of trying to get it out there. Um, and then I finished a lot of things that I had started. Among them this play, um, Ich Benign Berliner, which I had pitched to this theater and, and which is FAU theater lab who are amazing. And they were like, you know what? Um, we're going to commission this as a uh, radio play because we're in a pandemic and let's do something. And they added animation and they did all this stuff. So it was just definitely not, a, it was not a stop in any way <laughs> of the writing, you know, right. and for a writer, I feel like, you, you, I was in the same place I would have been writing, you know, I could, I could write from home. I don't usually, but I could. Um, so yeah. And then, and then I think it fed into all of this cooking stuff because we all cooked, right? Didn't we all yeah. go back to that? God, we Didn't, weren't we so all much. like, I'm a chef now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I tried a to make breaded. What was a failure? <laughs> I was a failure. I waited yeah. till after the pandemic to really, to do yeah, the whole sourdough. Yeah, he caught on late to that trend. That. <laughs> Uh, so tell us about the one that you have coming up this season, the hashtag graced graced. So graced has also been in the works for like even longer. I, I'm seriously, that play was like 2013. Wow. This is very illuminating for us to understand how long it takes for you to give birth to these, these projects. Yep. Yep. Um, and that used to be called grace. Listen to this. That play was called grace sponsored by Monteverde, which is a rum. Wow. <laughs> the title that of is that amazing. play. And then, you know, like a couple years after I write it, 
here comes this rum and is like, hey, I'm going to sponsor you. Um, but the the play is no longer called that because after I did Amparo, they're like, wait, is Monteverde sponsoring you? Who is Monteverde? I'm like, no. <laughs> that was not- just the name of the play. <laughs> yeah. That so we so changed funny. it because it has a lot to do with social media. It has to do with what it means to be an American right now. Um, so it's a, it's a woman that hits the road on a road trip to figure that out. But she's also figuring out where her mother's from. And uh, obviously, in my case, there's going to be a Cuban element in there. So sure. there is. Um, and and the hashtag grace is because it it delves into what social media is doing in terms of like it's, um, you know, it's freedoms and it's traps and what it's all, all of those, all of those things. So um, whenever that's all wrapped becomes in there. a brand. Yep. What happens yep. when every person has to be a brand and uh, that's right. And people are up or down on a brand, you know, right. or up and down on a person, too. Like, yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and um, that opens um, that's in the spring of next year so before that I have a show in Maine with Richard Blanco which is also about food oh really (laughs) tell us about that I mean like I love Richard Blanco I love his his story and his whole you know he's for people who don't know he he was he was chosen as the the inaugural poet uh, by uh, President Obama, and he was the first first gay man to be chosen as an inaugural poet. Yeah. Um. And uh. And he wrote a, a beautiful um biography called What is it? The Prince of Los Cocuyos. Of Los Cocuyos. Yeah. 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 And, and on top. And of he is that. also the poet laureate of Miami Dade County. Correct. He was declared. That's right. So. That's he's right. the best. He's still, and he, he still reps. He's yeah, also he super awesome and also down to earth. And Cupid and nice, you know what I mean? Like it's all those things, and then also you can talk to him. It's like this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what is that? What is that play? What What did you guys work on together? It's oh man, called, I'm so interested in that. He was so he was commissioned um, by uh, Portland Stage to do uh, a play on. It was for a series on Maine, and uh, he had something brewing. But then he went to see Amparo, and then we started talking. He was like, "Do you want to co-write this with me?" And I was like. I would love to co-write this with you. <laughs> um, so then we started from scratch and it was, um, it turned out into what it is now. And it's called Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas. And it's about a baker who is in Maine and um, her, her she has an strange relationship with, with her mother. And um, uh, she eventually comes in. She doesn't know if she should go back to Miami or stay in Maine. And it really ends up being about like this Maine community that has become a family, but also everything that she's bringing to Maine. And she starts like infusing. She makes um, blueberry senoritas and sweet goats are essentially like um, pastelitos, but with goat cheese. And so there's all this, you know, mixture of food. We hope that there is going to be food somewhere in this experience, like at the end. It's definitely a traditional theater, so it's not going to be like a deeply immersive thing. But um, love the director. And it's we go up to start rehearsing in January, and then it comes out in February. I mean, it, it starts in February and um, or at the end of January. It's either the end of January or the beginning of February. And then right after that is when I come back here and then graced. Bo- so. Both both those things, like a, the idea, or let's just say the idea of a blueberry senorita is very much to me like uh, adapting your culture to the, you know, your, the seed adapting to the ground on where it lands, yes. you know? Yeah. Uh, this idea of, of mixing, because the senorita is kind of like, um, uh, what would you, uh, what's the French term for it? Uh, mille fleur. It's uh, like. Mille fleur. That's right. Yeah. Where it's, it's kind of like a little um, uh, terraced 
pastry, you know, where yep. it's like cream and, and then uh, puff pastry and cream and some other filling and that kind of thing. And it's usually done with, you yeah. know, like French creams and stuff like that. But, right. but with the idea with a with Maine. blueberry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maine made its way in. And then, uh, yeah. And I've never had a senorita. Where do you get those? Oh. At any Cuban bakery. Any I was going to say, if it's not at a window, they don't they, sell those at the window. No, you no, have to no. go inside like Vicky's or I, I don't know, in Brazo Fuerte or Gilbert's yep. or, you know. Every or single Versailles. Cuban bakery will have one, yeah. And yeah. they're they're usually covered in like uh, confectioner sugar. It's a mm-hmm. little perfect. It's a perfect little square uh, that's almost like uh, like a trifle, like it's like it's tiered, and yeah. then uh, it's covered. It's in, a mess uh, when you bite into. Oh, it's it, there's say, no it clean like way to. Eat. You yeah, can't it sounds eat, like something you gotta eat, eat with, a with a fork because you can't stab it. You yeah. just gotta eat it and be messy. I think is you, the you have to just enjoy it. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I I really love that, and then it reminds me a little bit of like, uh, did you ever see the play once? Yes. When they, when they, and like at the beginning of that play, so that's, uh, first it was a movie and, yep. uh, and then they, they staged it and like you would go up on stage before the, the play bar. starts <laughs> and you would just buy a beer at the bar and you would be having a drink at the bar and then everybody takes their seats and yeah. then the play very casually starts. And I'm like, yeah. I would, I would be killing some senoritas up on stage. Exactly. If you guys that's, do something. Uh, like let that. me tell you my, my one story. I went to see it once at the the Tower Theater when it, I think it was here for the the Miami Film Festival like ages ago, and my girlfriend just texted me. She was like, "We're gonna go see this movie called Once," and I was like, "Okay, Once." So we get there. <laughs> <laughs> so we get there, and I'm like, "Why are they speaking English? This is called Once. What are <laughs> what is this about?" And it, the the opening scene is like this guy, this Irish guy, just screaming into the camera, singing this like really sad, sad song. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. I wanted Once. I wanted a sad movie about somebody speaking Spanish. So I love it. Does that it tell you every, great. Does that tell you everything you need to know about Amy, right? Like, I love like, it. like, like the, the, the getting a transplanted to uh to Latin soil and oh the last thing and, I thought was that my friend this, from uh, Colombia was gonna take me to see some movie about some Irish people. That's so like, funny. Well, we always say like with my friends with the Irish and the Cuban are not that far apart. I say that all the time that the, the, yeah. the Cubans are are the Irish of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's real. It's yeah. really real. <laughs> and Amy is now an avocado monkey, as we can see. <laughs> uh, Vanessa, oh, where where um where can people find your stuff? Like, where where can tell us like where yeah. people can find you and where you want them to look for your stuff? So essentially, this the book launches. What the bread says launches this weekend, and the book okay. launch is at Books and Books on um sunday at uh 4 p.m okay and it should be fun because we're gonna have a conversation with christina fernandez who's a chef and who makes these amazing guava babkas oh my god she's so good um from i need more i think with a k so there's a pun in there that's that's who she is so we'll be in conversation with her and then i'm going on a local and national tour and everything will always be on my instagram and uh which is vanessa garcia writer Okay. And then uh, the other big Miami thing, so I'll be doing bakeries. I'm going to go to Cow Bakeries and I'm going to go Aww. to Three Full Cafe. Yeah. And then um, I am doing the book fair on the 20th at noon at their children's alley, which is, you know, for my, my audience is free because 12 and under are free. Nice. <laughs> for the, Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, that's that part. And then, yeah, I'll keep everything up there and I have a newsletter that if you go to my website, you can sign up for it. And I, I also send out when things are happening. So my my website is just my name, VanessaGarcia.org. Perfect. Well, before we let you go, 
you got to play our game. We we ask everybody to play our food version of Kiss, Mary Kill. Oh, my God. And as you see over there in the chat, Amy hit you with challah, baguette, and Cuban bread. You got to kiss, Mary Kill. What does this mean? Come on. You, there's, kiss okay. one. That means you that's gotta, your boo. But like, you, okay. you got to break up at the okay. end of the week. You marry okay. one, and that's like forever. Okay. And then you kill the other one. You have to live without it. Oh, oh yeah. my God. It's tough. It's tough. Because even like when I was looking at the, the book, the, the hala looked really good. The hala I, I, I think I'm going to have to marry the hala. Wow. Okay. Why? What, what is it about hala that you're like? I, and kill what? the baguette. And kill a baguette. Okay, so so you get explained to us. So what is it about a hollow that you love so much that you're like, this is this is my bread this forever. Is the one. This is you and me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I love I. This is cheesy, but I love the way that it's shaped and the texture and the way that it's a braid and everything that it symbolizes and everything that comes together in this bread. And I feel like it would be a really good, you know, husband. <laughs> it would take really good care it of you. Really, it just would, you know? Um, it makes great French toast, man. Hala mm-hmm. French toast yeah. is oh my God. Maruno. And there's like sweetness and softness, but also mm-hmm. a little crisp. There's just a lot of things going on with the hala. Um the Cuban bread, I got to kiss it because I don't know what else to do with it. Like squish it and kiss it and hug it, you know, keep it close. And then because I had no other option. Right, right. You had to you had to kiss, uh, kill the uh, baguette. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's fine. Yeah, I think I these are good to. selections. I, I support. I endorse. I feel like the, the hala, hala has, it's so, like hala, I always feel, because my kid used to go to school at the JCC around the corner mm-hmm. and they would have hala every week and I would always be like, can I have the leftovers? And <laughs> <laughs> they would give it to me and I, it would just make my whole weekend. I loved yeah. it. And it was just the season of the round hala, uh, hmm. uh, Rosh Hashanah. Um, yes, it was. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you have a strong connection still with like, what is your, the strong connection that you have with like the Jewish community or the Jewish faith that, I, that you seem to come back to it every now and then? I know. I don't know why. Okay, right. <laughs> I did 23 and me because I thought I was going to have like this enormous amount of, of, of Jewish blood. And apparently I don't, but I think that, well, I have some, I think we all do. Right. Sure. Isn't that, um, but I think that the story draws me a great deal. Um, and I was, I went to Catholic school which sounds like um, it should like an antithesis of being drawn to Judaism, but it makes me very drawn. <laughs> um, there's something about the base of, of both religions that is incredibly similar and also food and community. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the Irish and the Cubans, and it's not so different between Jews and Cubans, you know? Yeah. So uh, I just have always been drawn somehow it's an important story and i i and it's delicious quick, i mean <laughs> what can you say I, well delicious in general i mean yeah. jesus so good yeah well well vanessa you have been uh, uh the, you've been a queen for coming on the show and talking foolishness and and good and uh cool stuff on a day that's uh kind of weird and strange with the hurricane out there and and man I, I, it's really great to talk to you so find her find vanessa on all the things uh vanessa garcia writer uh on Instagram and uh, and at her website. Thank you. It's been so fun to be on this. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again. Uh, she's the best. She's she is great. the best. Yeah. I like her. Jake, Jake and I have been forever trying to get lunch with her. So I'm glad that we were able to kind of, um, catch up to, to have, have her on and catch up and, and hear about. Some yeah. I know work. she's got cool projects going on. I, I, I don't know about you, but I want a blueberry senorita real bad right now. Yeah. I, well, I want the, the what was the first the thing tradi- called? 
the the, the goat. Um, oh yeah, it's basically a goat cheese pastelito. Yeah, no, that's it. That, that sounds, sounds amazing. amazing. Why doesn't that, that sounds, exist in the universe? Yeah, I know. Like, why don't we have those goat cheese pastelitos? I would kill. No, for sure. Well, Amy, that feels like a show. I think you're right. Yeah. I'm gonna go climb up my tree and get some more avocados now. Okay, don't hurt yourself.